0: Welcome to the Inside Nature Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Olson, digital producer for Nature. In this episode, we're speaking to John Nolan, animatronic designer and founder of John Nolan Studios based in London. John and his team created many of the robot spy creatures featured in the upcoming nature miniseries, Spy in the Wild, which begins February 1st on PBS. There are more than 30 spy creatures in all, and they range in size from a small worm-like grub to a full-size, fully expressive orangutan. The creatures may look quite different on the outside, but they have two things in common. One, their movements are lifelike enough to fool real animals. And two, hidden inside each one is a camera designed to capture intimate, close-up shots of animal behavior that have never been documented before. I sat down with John at WNET's Studios in New York to find out what it takes to make a spy creature come alive. Hi John, welcome to the Inside Nature podcast. Thank you for joining us.
1: Hi, thank you very much for having me.
0: To start, how did you get into this field of work? Uh,
1: I I went to the London College of Fashion actually, believe it or not, (laughs) to um, study uh, hair and makeup. And uh, it gave me the opportunity to uh, learn about sculpture, like clay sculpting if you like, um, doing prosthetics where we we were um, introduced to gluing things onto people's faces and creating skins like foam latex and silicon and i guess it was an extension of that really we had the opportunity to also film things so um, we could uh, create prosthetic makeups and then film them in like mock adverts commercials music videos that sort of thing Uh, and i guess my interest stemmed from um, a company called jim henson's creature shop who are massive obviously major in the 80s I, i was born 79 so I was brought up on all the films like um, Labyrinth, Dark Crystal, all those amazing, even Ninja Turtles. I couldn't wait. When when that came out, it was just unbelievable. And uh, so that was where my interest started in this.
0: So some element of designing these creatures for Spy in the Wild, it seems like there's a lot of engineering that goes into that, yeah. did your background in these other disciplines prepare you for that? Or is that something that you had to learn on your own? Well, that's a good question
1: actually, because obviously prosthetic makeup and then engineering are completely different. But um, I suppose I learned from the outside in. I, I learned the prosthetics first and then worked out how to make the, the prosthetics move, if you like. So I would sculpt a static model and then try and work out uh, the pivot points that would sit underneath the skin and then I learned about engineering on my first film project as a trainee. I was actually moved into the animatronics department so I could learn about machining stuff. And I'd already started building stuff with lollipop sticks. And I worked at the cinema and made a, a sort of moving hand out of straws and sellotape because I was bored on the kiosk one night. Um, so then when I got into my professional um, work on, on this feature film, I, I actually was um, exposed to the machinery that, that we could use to engineer stuff, and then obviously the materials and you know brass or aluminium or or aluminium, do you call it? I think <laughs> um, plastics and um, bearings and stuff. So that's when I started to learn about engineering, and obviously worked with top engineers and um, as a trainee, and they and they really showed me the right path. So so then I could start to build stuff and actually make the stuff I'd learned at college move. So
0: um, in addition to Spy in the Wild, do you also work on feature films? Um, Could you mention some of the films that you've worked on? Yeah,
1: sure. I mean, personally, I've worked on the Harry Potter films, um, Brothers Grimm, I've worked on Warhols, Robin Hood, um, Where the Wild Things Are, which was an amazing project for us. Um, um, But since running my own company, we're, we're starting to move into film work now, and we're getting a few films for... My own company. So it sounds
0: like John Downer is very lucky to have you and your team working with him on this project.
1: Absolutely, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, likewise. I mean, you know, it, both ways really. They, they, um, they've been brilliant. I mean, I've, we've never worked um, on nature programs before, um, and it's it's been absolutely fantastic. I guess it's um, the the build and and the job generally, we use the same disciplines, but um, obviously, building stuff for wildlife is completely different to something maybe that we're building for film. You know, we normally um, deal with producers and, and actors, for example. So, say, for example, if we had to build an egret for a film, and um, it had to be 100% believable, so that the, the audience would believe, believe it. Um, obviously, you have an editor that can sort of cut away where it doesn't look real, where it looks like an animatronic or it looks too robotic. You've also got the the actor that can that can help you as well because their their performance will make the audience believe that the egret's real. For example, uh, with this project, we haven't got that, and and it's completely exposed in that you know we've built this this egret. It's gone out to to um, Africa, and and it's to bed in with real animals that obviously react with it and respond to it. And if they don't respond to it in a certain way then it's over it exposes us so it's been a, a really challenging project in that respect so it's something that we've we've done before with regards to building robots but not to obviously bed in with real animals and to f- basically cheat nature to fool full real animals and you can spray it with as as many um, sprays or, or you know um, or rub it in horse manure whatever they do elephant dung but um, if if it doesn't move in a way that um, that other animals know, then obviously um, our cover's blown.
0: So is that something that you studied in designing these creatures? Did you spend a lot of time looking at animal movement?
1: Completely, yeah. Um, I guess we start from, we always start from a clay model. Um, so we would sculpt up a clay model in the form of, of an animal, the particular animal we're, we're designing. It's um, it's difficult because obviously some of them are covered in fur and feather. So we have to consider what the animal would look like naked, if you like, or bare, r- with that removed, with the fur or feather removed. Um, so that's so we would start with a clay sculpture, and then we would we would mould that in a fibreglass to to create like a mould, almost like a jelly mould. So or you you have like a fibreglass mould, and whatever you fill it with, you have a version of your sculpture with with that material. And then after looking at um, reference videos and all sorts of um, the, the anatomy and the movement of the animal um, normally slowed down as well. It really helps. We can find the footage of it at high speed. like Slow, then that's, that's great for us. We'd work out all the pivot points and how, how the, uh, the anatomy works underneath the skin. And that's how we could start plotting out our, our design work for the animatronic and our engineering and how um, certain planes of movement cross over and pivot points are. And, and, and we literally just cut out the metal with um, with CNC machines. It's all designed in 3D, and so we can sort of see what it it looks like before we cut it out. And then we literally cut it out in the machines and piece it together and drive it with motors and stuff, and then put the skin on over the top. And that and that's what creates the uh, the robot.
0: That's really interesting. Thanks for walking us through that process. Oh, no that's awesome. Aside from building these creatures, how are they actually controlled?
1: There's a number of Ways of controlling them, um, I think we've built like 23 or 25 devices, um, different animals, and we would normally control them with a radio transmitter and receiver, which you find most commonly in uh, radio controlled aeroplanes. So what that allows us to do is to have like a radio transmitter free of any wires, so we can be 150 metres away from the animal. And if you have, say for example, you have a joystick that moves up and down on the controller, that will move a motor left and right, or, uh, or up and down if you like. So if we were to have uh, an animal that requires head movement that, that's up and down and left and right, for example, we would include two motors inside the body that, that mechanically drive those two movements. And then on your joystick, you, you have up and down, left and right, and when you mix those, you have full rotation of the head. As the, the project evolved and we were asked to build more advanced characters, we we actually introduced control systems so instead of uh, a joystick giving you an up down or or a pan and a tilt it would actually control 36 motors for example on one joystick so it controls expressions rather than one motor so what that allows to give uh, what that allows you to have is um uh, a full expression so it might be for example on on the final spy creature we made which was an orangutan Um, you can move the joystick forwards and that will give you an oo, so it will use 25 motors in the face to create an oo and then you pull it back and it will give you an E, so it uses all those motors again to pull them back and to manipulate the skin into an E and then you might move that to bottom left on the controller and that will give you an E to the left side or an E to the right side to break up the symmetry of the face so actually um, there are quite a few ways of, of, of controlling animatronics, and we, we definitely um, we use them within this within within this project and, and all the, the the animals that we built for it.
0: So I imagine when you're trying to coordinate that many different motors together, that it would require some kind of computer programming. Is that true as well?
1: Yeah, it is. It's, it's um, there's programming involved. Yeah. So we back at the studio, we would actually. Use a, a a PC to program the animatronics and the devices um, so that they were easy to use out in the wild, and, and that they could literally put them in a backpack, trek for ten miles or whatever. So I'm glad we didn't go trek for ten miles uh, with a with a bush baby in a backpack, and then take it out, put it in the wild, bed it in, and then control from a distance, and uh, and it only be two or three people out there. So so yeah, completely. We, we had to. Pre-program everything before it left the studio.
0: Did you have to do anything to quiet the motors in these animatronics, as not to frighten the animals?
1: Yes, that's one of the hardest things um, that we uh, had to deal with in this project. In that, it's almost like (laughs) we we get given um, we get given the the creature. It's like, can you build uh, a bowerbird or a uh, a yellow hornbill? Um, But it can't, we can't have any noise, but it has to have motors to, to, control, to drive it. But we, we've got to cut out all the noise because it's going to be in a nest. And if, if the, the real birds hear the, the sound of the motors, then obviously it's going to spook them and they're not going to react in a way that, that we, we need them to. So I think that was one of the hardest things. Um, so we had to design them in a way that, whereby we could have the motors outside of the, the puppet. So, for example, um, say, for example, a motor is, I don't know, um, between an inch and a half long square, if you like. Um, Obviously, you won't be able to fit any of those in a bird the size of a, or or maybe two in, in the size of a hornbill, or a hornbill chick, should I say. So, we had to build the mechanics inside the robot in a way that they were all, controlled by cable runs so we call them captive pulleys so for example you have a wheel or or pulley at one end with a with a loop of cable running all the way through and back to the other end controlling another pulley so one pulley is attached to a motor when that moves backwards and forwards it's it's um operating a pulley that's inside the bird some distance away so what that allowed us to do was have a cable run almost like an umbilical of of cables that came out of the, re- of the animatronic bird maybe a metre away and then you had like a, a block of motors that, that we could bury in the, in the sand or, or, um, or hide in a tree stump or something like that so actually the only sounds that were coming from the the, the puppet end were uh, levers moving or clicks of, um, of, of engineering or motor uh, sorry, um, uh, mechanics so that was it really and in fact on the hornbill we we put a, a, a mini MP3 player and a speaker inside so that we could actually include a, a, a call to its mother, so that it would entice the, the adult birds to the, the the bird box where this hornbill was.
0: How big was the team of people that created all of these creatures for the Spire in the Wild miniseries?
1: Everybody's freelance at the studio, and we've probably. Gone from three people on one spy creature to, I would say, there was probably about twelve on the orangutan. I would say maybe even more, maybe fourteen people. So we had a team of uh, a couple of people doing the, the the sculpting, a couple of people doing the uh, the animatronic, pro- the animatronic side and the engineering. We had mold makers. We had people doing. Um, it was made out of the head was made out of silicon skin, so. We had someone pouring silicon skin for the head, because it's got the translucency that's required um, for, the, for the face. We, the, the body was made out of foam latex, so we had a foam runner. We had someone individually putting, or a team of people individually putting hair and fur into the, into the body. Um, yeah, a, a painter to, to do the, the, the artworking on the skin. And then obviously puppeteers and, and people to program the movements, which is what I said before about the preloaded expressions. So I would say for the orangutan, there's probably about 12 or 14 people involved.
0: So which was the hardest spy creature to create? It,
1: this is really tricky because I'm, I'm, conf- uh, I, I'm, I'm stuck between something that's really small and, some, and, and, and the most, I mean, one of the most advanced ones we did was the, was the orangutan. Which was such a lovely one to build. The thing is, with, um, with personally with with, um, with apes and monkeys, where you know they're so similar to us, their movements, everything about them. So it was such a lovely one to build, and it wasn't the the trickiest because necessarily because it's it was the largest. So actually, you can fit loads of motors inside to create all the movements. So that's not a problem. So I'm sort of stuck between saying it's the smallest ones that are the hardest because there's no room to put anything the mechanics become so small it's almost like a a swiss watch or something whereas with the orangutan you've got a lot of movement uh, a lot of space sorry to to put all the movement in and mechanics but the the other thing with having to create a beast that size or an animal that size is the the size of it and the weight of it because then obviously if you've got an, an orangutan that needs to move backwards and forwards like rocking as if it's sawing something and obviously you've got a lot of weight to shift around. So you're, you've got to consider um, gravity, inertia, weight against the motors that have to deal with that sort of stress and pressure out in a boiling hot country. So I think the orangutan was one of the trickiest, but then also a, a, a small mechanical grub <laughs> is a really tricky thing to do because, you know, there's nowhere to put the motors or... Um, one of the hardest things on this job was hiding the camera. The guys at John Downer used um, a number of different cameras that were all modified. Um, so one minute you'd be working with a camera the size of a five... Oh, I was going to say five pence piece. <laughs> I don't know, if you know? A centimetre, if you like, diameter. And uh, other times you were working with a camera that was much bigger, two-inch square or something like that. So, you know, to try and hide a, a, a certain size camera inside an egret head was really tricky. Probably the orangutan was the best with regards to how we hid the camera because we still managed to have full eye movement including blinking, tracking, so when you would look up and down the eyelids would track the eyeball and it would blink in any position and we managed to actually put the small camera inside the eyeball so the eyeball could still move around and that's the first creature that we managed to do that on so that was probably the trickiest with regards to hiding the camera.
0: That was creature creator John Nolan. You can catch all of John's spy creations in the upcoming nature miniseries, Spy in the Wild, starting February 1st at 8 p.m. on PBS. Check your local listings for the details. And be sure to check out all of our podcasts, full-length episodes, behind-the-scenes footage, and much more at pbs.org nature. Until next time, I'm Eric Olson.